0: hear what Jesus has to say to his disciples, which is not just the folks in the crowd on that day, but you and me today who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. Hear the word of God. Speaking about Jesus, Luke says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. That's another way of saying he gazed at them. He, 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 he looked them over. You know, have you ever had somebody kind of look at you and it kind of... Assess you just a little bit. That's what he did. he's looking at them carefully. He waits until he has their undivided attention. It's almost like there's a holy silence, and then he says, "Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who, hung, who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you." And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, as we stop and pause on a section of Scripture that was revealing to us what is important to the heart of Jesus and therefore ought to be important in our lives. Father, I confess to you as I've wrestled with this text, I don't see myself as much in these definitions as I would like. You would think by now that I'd be further down the path. But Lord Jesus, your word is pure, and it's perfect, and it is timeless. And so as it spoke to those disciples sitting by the Lake of Galilee on that particular day, so it speaks into our hearts this morning. Father, I know the sin that's in my heart. At least I know some of it. I probably don't know all of it. And I confess it to you this morning and ask that you would not allow that to be a stumbling block for someone to hear your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and open our our eyes and our ears and our understanding so that we could know what's most important when it comes to following Jesus. pray in his name. Amen. I want you to know before we begin this morning that I come to this passage in a time of serious personal reflection for myself as a disciple of Jesus as well as my role as a pastor. I took to heart the elders call for prayer and fasting, and spent spent a good number uh, of hours thinking over and praying over and questioning uh, my call as a disciple of Jesus and my call as a pastor. And so, as I've wrestled through this text again, I don't think it's a it's a surprise that it comes in kind of the life of Green Tree, where it comes. And I call this sermon "Desirable Undesirables" because I think in this few verses this week, and then again a few verses next week, that Jesus points out some things to us that might come as a surprise. That might be something that we wouldn't naturally look to and say, boy, I really want that or I I really see that in my life. Uh, But rather, these are things that we may kind of take a step back and, and maybe take stock a little bit and say, wow, that's not necessarily what I signed up for. I didn't understand that going into the deal. But now that I see that it's most important to Jesus, some things in my life need to change. And I believe if we can get there together, it will be of great help to us. But Jesus gives us, uh, in, in this text, I think four things that disciples just have to get their minds and hearts around. Four things that I would say are non-negotiables. In other words, Jesus isn't suggesting these things. He's saying you're blessed if these things are in your life, which means this is a way that uh, if I see these things in your life, I'll pat you on the back and say, way to go, because you've, you've gotten it. You've understood what's important to my heart. And so I think these four Uh, these four directions to the disciples are clues into the heart of Jesus and how our lives need to uh, follow and mirror his. So the first one is this. Disciples must grasp their true condition. Disciples must grasp their true condition. Look at verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, as I said before, Luke contextualizes. He shrinks it down, whereas Matthew expands it. If you go and you look at Matthew's gospel, it says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Luke is not giving us a different sermon, and Jesus isn't now talking about physical poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. He's talking about an understanding of of your true condition before God, and your condition before God, and my condition before God, before we experience any healing or restoration, is one of neediness. It's one of being spiritually poor. We are without hope and we are helpless due to the sinful condition of our souls. This world is broken. I really don't think I need to go into a whole lot of, of, uh, of definition about that to convince you. If you looked at the paper this morning, if you looked at the headlines on your internet this morning, if you spent any time at all examining what's going on in this world, and if you look at the history of this world, it's a history of conflict. It's a history of brokenness. Yes, there's some beauty in the world. Yes, there's some amazing things that happen from time to time. But all in all, we live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world that, in a sense, is, is practicing self-destruction in every generation. And so I think even people who don't claim to be disciples of Jesus can say, yes, I see that on an ongoing basis, generation after generation, there are character flaws that hurt this world. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to get that. You've got to understand that you are hopeless without me. Now, I would also say that part of, part of us, part of me, wants to embrace that. I can't help but look at the world, and I can't help but, if I'm honest, when I look in the mirror see that I'm part of the problem and not necessarily part of the solution. You don't have to go past those three children whom I just told you I dearly love, and I do. I would give my life for them in an instant without even thinking about it, and they can tell you how I've wronged them in their lives. They can tell you how I've lost my temper with them. They can tell you how I've had unrealistic expectations for them. They can tell you how I've been impatient with them. They can tell you how I've let priorities get out of whack and I haven't spent the time with them that I should. And those are people for whom I would give my life. You don't have to look past me to know that this world is a broken place. And so part of me wants to embrace that and say, that's exactly right. But you know, there's another part of me. There's another part of my soul that that absolutely finds this truth revolting. Yes, there are moments of honesty, but there are also many other moments of denial. It's when I want you to see me as strong. I want to put out a, a vibe of independence and capability because doesn't everybody want to follow a strong, strong leader? Perhaps you've uh, seen the movie Cinderella Man, a great movie. Russell Crowe, uh, 2005, made this story. It's the story of Jimmy Braddock, the boxer, who, uh, who fought in the, in the 20s and then into the 30s. Uh, And Braddock was a great boxer, but he got arthritis in his hands and he couldn't uh, box anymore and he lost everything during the depression. And he and his family were in dire straits. He was working on the docks for a while and and the docks were having less and less business and so he was having less and less work to do. And in the the course of the story and in the course of the movie, there's a scene in which Jimmy Braddock goes to the apartment of Joe Gould. Joe Gould was his lifelong friend and his, his business manager. And he knocks on Gould's apartment door. Gould opens the door. uh, And if you remember the movie, if you've seen it, he kind of sticks his head out, but he doesn't open the door and let Braddock in, which you think is odd because they really are not just in a business relationship, but they're good friends. And they're talking, and Braddock is basically saying, you know, look, Joe, I, I, I'm down to nothing. If there's anything you can do to help me, if there's any way you can tie me over, I'm, you know, my kids are hungry. And, he, and Gould just kind of standing looking out the door going, you know, Jimmy, I just don't know if I can help you. And, and, and finally, Braddock says, well, let me come in. Let, let, let's talk about this. And Gould kind of puts him off, and, and literally Braddock shoves his way through the door, and he enters into this penthouse apartment in, the, in this high rise, and there's no furniture. And there's nothing in the refrigerator. And Gould looks at Braddock. He says, it's all a facade. See, I want to keep up appearances because it's the only way that I'm, I'm going to be able to get work in order to provide for my family. But the truth is, the cupboards are all bare. Friends, that's a picture of you and me. We, we want at moments of clarity when the Spirit is moving in our hearts to embrace the truth that we are spiritually lost and helpless and hopeless apart from the grace of God. But there's another reaction that wants to hold that truth at arm's length. And we want to just crack the door open and tell everybody that we're okay and then close it and let the facade continue. And the danger in ignoring our poverty opens the door to a spiritual arrogance and a spiritual pride that rejects God's provision of his kingdom. Notice what Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. He doesn't say will be. He doesn't put it in a future tense. He says, you have the kingdom of God right now. How do you get the kingdom of God? You get the kingdom of God by understanding your need for it and that you don't deserve it. But God and his grace and his mercy is going to meet you right where you live. So even though you're struggling, even though you are spiritually poor, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Why? Because of his grace. And we need to, as a congregation, avoid this danger of ignoring or rejecting the notion that we are spiritually poor apart from Christ. Because there's a flip side, there's an opportunity. And the opportunity is this, that our spiritual poverty, coupled with our present condition of citizenship, it sets the tone for our lives and for our spiritual family. My children are better off. My marriage is better off. This church is better off when I get that when I understand that apart from Christ, what I bring to the table is need, period, end of paragraph. Your family will be better when you get that too. Your marriage will be better when you get that too. Your finances will be better when you get that too because you will begin to place it all in God's hands. And therein, friends, lies the opportunity. It lies the opportunity for us to be a church, to be a people, to be a spiritual family where the tone is one of humility because we know it's by God's grace. Disciples must grasp their true condition. Secondly, disciples must develop a proper appetite. Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. Again, Jesus is not talking about a physical hunger, but rather he's talking about a spiritual hunger. Uh, Matthew says, Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness for you will be It's amazing how much time we spend sitting uh, at the world's table As it were trying to satisfy and nourish our souls with things that will never satisfy With things that will that will never nourish us, but will simply cause us To be lacking and coming back for more we gorge ourselves on things like wealth possessions sex power reputation, which can literally distract us until we starve to death. A lot of you know that C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and, and a lot of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia uh, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was a, made in a movie, I think, a year or two ago. Uh, and there's a scene in the, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in which one of the children has uh, stumbled into Narnia. little Edmund has stumbled into Narnia, and he meets up with the White Witch, and Edmund's standing in the middle of the woods in the middle of the winter and he doesn't have a coat on and he's shivering and the white witch comes up in this beautiful sleigh and she's got a beautiful white fur coat on and she calls Edmund up into the sleigh and she puts the coat around him and she has a dropper and then when the drop hits the, the bottom of the sleigh, there's a cup of hot chocolate and then she does a drop again and a big box of chocolates comes out and she gives them to Edmund and she's trying to just kind of suck him into her world of evil by offering these things that look so delightful. But here's the end result of that process. It says, At last the Turkish delight was all finished, and Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he would like some more. Probably the queen knew quite well that he, what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that the, this was enchanted Turkish delight and that anyone who once tasted it would want more and more of it and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it till they killed themselves. Friends, our appetite, our taste has to change. Disciples need to, to train our taste, as it were, for the things of God. Now I understand this from a, from a physical side of things uh, because I have a daughter who's studying nutrition and health and I am her guinea pig. And last summer was great because Katie was on the road all summer working for Compassion International and so I got to eat whatever I wanted to eat. Katie's gonna be home this summer. I can promise you I'm gonna be a lot skinnier in August than I am right now because Katie's gonna start out with kinda something along these lines. Hey dad, why don't we try to lose some weight this summer? And I know when she says we, she means me. About three years ago, she said, Dad, we're going to stop drinking Coke. I said, Katie, I hadn't noticed that you ever drink Coke. She goes, I don't, and you're not going to either. <laughs> it's been three years since I've had a can of Coke. Three years since I've had a can of Coke. When I walk by Coke and Schnooks, you know what? I don't even look at it anymore because I've lost my taste for it. Katie said, Dad, if you'll trust me in this and you'll, and you'll get rid of the Coke and you'll stop eating some of the sweets you're eating and maybe just have a little dessert on Sunday and skip the rest of the week. You know what? When you eat fruit and when you eat nuts and when you eat all that good stuff, the taste is just going to explode in your mouth and it's going to be so much better. And you know what? She was right. And it really ticks me off. <laughs> but you taste an orange, you taste a banana, and you go, man, I've got a whole new taste Friends, that's what needs to happen to us spiritually. Disciples must train our taste, which means we've got to get rid of the negative and we have to introduce the positive. And so I've got to ask myself and ask you this morning, what is it that you're taking out of your diet, spiritually speaking? What are those things that you're no longer going to taste of the world that will move you away from being centered on the things of the flesh and put you in a direction that loves the things of the spirit? Maybe for you, you need... To stop tasting so much money (laughs) Maybe you need to let go of some of that wealth because all it's doing is getting you to focus on the here and now And maybe what has to be replaced with that is god's radical notion of giving Perhaps what needs to happen is that you've got to let go of your desire for reputation You're longing to eat at the world's table that says you've got to be the best and the brightest and the strongest And you can't show any weakness and you can't show any gentleness because people will just take advantage of that And we all know that nice guys finish last Maybe you've got to die to that reputation in order to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I had lunch with a friend on Thursday, I had two friends on Thursday, and one of them was talking about a conversation he had had with another mutual friend of ours that wasn't at that lunch. And he said, our friend asked him, when's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? And he said, I thought about it, and I told him my answer, and it was, it was X amount of months or, or, or years ago. And he said, my friend paused, our friend paused, and he said, you know what? That's a really, really bad answer. If it's been that long since you've talked to somebody about Jesus, that's a really, really bad answer. And he said, I realized that something had to change. I realized that I was living for my reputation. I was living for people to think I'm a good guy and that I won't rock the boat and that, that, yeah, if they ask, I'll tell them a little bit about it, but I'm not going to go out of my way to look like a disciple. Friends, we've got to change our taste. Because of the condition... If the true condition is understood and that, and that sets the tone, then our hunger for the things of God will establish our priorities. You know, in our mission statement, we say we want to we make disciples, we want to uh, renew communities, we want to uh, plant churches. But there's a little phrase before we get into that that we skip over quite, quite quickly. And it simply says this, we want to know Jesus and make him known. Do we have an appetite to do that? Does that taste sweet in your mouth? That somebody would come to know the Savior. Disciples must develop a proper appetite. Thirdly, disciples must be emotionally attached to the process. Look at the first first part of verse 21. Blessed are you who are, excuse me, the second half of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I really wrestled with this. I really um, had a hard time working through this because I think on the one hand, I cry pretty easily. You know, if I go to a movie and, and, you know, like the little puppy dog dies or something like that, you know, I'll, you know, go, oh, you know, I'm kind of tired from last night and didn't get a lot of sleep, you know, and and I'm really kind of choking back the tears. You know, if you tell me a sad story, I'll kind of get a little misty with you and get a little disturbed, you know, just a little bit. I don't want you to see too much of that. But when's the last time I looked at the sin in my life? and wept over it? When's the last time I said, man, I got a ways to go in my relationships with certain people? You know, I I love people pretty well as long as they like me and like Green Tree and like the way I do things at Green Tree. But but if you start being critical how I do things at Green Tree, I just don't know that I have time for you anymore. When's the last time I wept over that? When's the last time I saw that as, as something that's heartbreaking to God? When's the last time I looked at the ramifications of sin in this world and and I saw the destruction and the pain and the suffering that it brings and I just sat down and I cried over the consequences of sin. As Tom Hanks' character said in League of Their Own, there may be no crying in baseball, but I can tell you that there should be many tears that are shed by the disciples of Jesus as we grieve over the condition of, of our own lack of love for God as well as the brokenness. Of this world, in Psalm 137, the psalmist was a uh, an alien in uh, Babylon. He was an exile that had been carried off into captivity, and he wrote these words: "By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion." On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. We put our instruments away, is another way of saying it. For there, our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors, mirth, saying, Sing us the songs of Zion. Their, their captors were making fun of them about their faith in Christ. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The psalmist understood that the need to attach oneself emotionally to the process of our relationship with God so that it causes us to focus inward on our own heart and see those things that God wants to change and then to focus outward and to see where we can make a difference in the world. You're not gonna make a difference in the world if you don't care about it. And Jesus says, you're blessed when you cry now. Someday you're gonna laugh. Someday we're gonna be in heaven. It's all gonna be good. We're gonna be at a party. We're gonna be having a blast. We're gonna be dancing on the tables. We're gonna be telling stories. But right now, people are dying in their sin. Right now, you're ignoring some corner of your life that you won't give over to me. And you reject and refuse to love me as you should. That ought to make you cry. I said we just came out of our, our prayer and fasting of three weeks, and I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to I'm going to pick at you for just a minute. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pick on you for just a minute. But then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to defend you just as quickly. Okay. Came out of prayer three weeks of prayer and fasting. I got lots of feedback, lots of comments from people, uh, both face to face as well as emails, and. And we said, you know, as you're praying, as you're fasting, what do you think God's saying to Green Tree? And I got a lot of responses about, you know, I think this is where we are, and I think these are some of the things we ought to look at more carefully, and and maybe we ought to consider uh, this instead of that, and all really, really good feedback. But literally in dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations, not one person that I can remember, maybe you did, and if you did, you can come up and correct me after the service. Not one person sent me an email or had a conversation with me and said, Tom, God has shown me my sin. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to pause and to to step back and to pray and to fast and to weep over my condition when I don't honor Christ. Now, I'm going to defend you for a minute because as elders, we said to you, we want you to pray for Green Tree Community Church. But I find it odd, quite frankly, that in that process, not one of us turned inward. And it might have been poor leadership on my part. So I'm going to suggest a do-over you ever had a do-over, you know? It's called a mulligan for a golfer, okay? So I thought the first three weeks of prayer and fasting were really good, and I did get great feedback. I'm, I, I love the feedback I got. It was very helpful. But I think we need to spend the next three weeks in prayer and fasting again. Now, the elders, haven't, they, the elders sitting in this room are going, Tom, we've never heard this. What are you doing, okay? So this is just a Tom Ricks thing, and if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. That's okay. The elders aren't saying this. It's just me. But I think we need a do-over, and I think we need to spend three weeks, again, one day a week saying, Lord, show me my life and show me the brokenness of this world, and show me where I need to change, and then show me where I can make a difference, where I can have an impact on someone's life. We must be emotionally attached to this discipleship because the result will be that Green Tree will become a safe place for folks to wrestle with their sin. It'll be a safe place for people to come in their confusion. It'll be a safe place for people to come in their fear and their anxiety and maybe even their anger and wrestle with the claims of Christ because they know they're around a bunch of other people that struggle just like they do. Don't we want to have an environment that's so led by the Holy Spirit and so under control of the word of God that when sinners walk in here, they literally say, what's going on? And how can I get that? Disciples must be emotionally attached to the process. And fourthly, disciples must expect confrontation. Look at verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, If you look at that list with any kind of honesty at all, (laughs) this is the hardest one of the three, okay? You're supposed to be excited when people have this reaction to you. They hate you, okay? They can't stand you. They don't want to be around you, all right? They revile you. That means that they go around saying bad things about you, okay? They spurn you uh, as evil, and they exclude you from anything, any part of their lives. And you're supposed to jump up and down and go, isn't that the greatest thing in the world? (laughs) all on account of Jesus. I can't remember the last time I woke up in the morning and said, gee, I can't wait for somebody to hate me today. Then not this going to be a good day if somebody just walks up and punches me in the nose because they know that I love Jesus? I can't wait till somebody I'm talking with excludes me from a conversation or, or doesn't really want to be a friend of mine because they know that I'm a disciple of Jesus. I don't have those thoughts naturally, friends. That's the most foreign concept to me because I want everybody to like me. And I want everybody to love me. And I want everybody to think good about me. So I'll maybe talk a little bit less about Jesus in order for man's appreciation. And Jesus says, you got it all backwards, Tom. Those people are dying. They're destined for hell. And you want them to like you more than you want them to know me? Don't you understand you'll be blessed if you tell them about me and they look at you and they reject you? Don't live for the approval of man jump for joy when they get it. It's not that we feel happy that people revile us, and it's not that we live uh, to go out of our way to um, irritate people. You know, we're not, Jesus inclined us here to be rude, obnoxious Christians and say, you know what, I'm just going to tick people off. With my, I'm going to just smack them with my Bible until they get fed up with me and hate me. You know, that's not what he's saying. But are we willing to die to our desire of ease and comfort lack of confrontation, in order that people would know the Son of Man. Our philosophy, hopefully, at Green Tree is that we we don't want to offend purposely, but if we are going to offend, it will be with the gospel, because we tell people the truth in Christ. This reaction, Jesus says, is to be expected. People aren't always going to like you, but our perseverance through it depends upon our focus. Are we focused on him? I'm not going to read this whole passage for you, but I would suggest that you read the latter half of Acts chapter 5 this afternoon. I'm just going to read a couple verses for you here. The apostles have been called in by the Pharisees because they've been proclaiming the name of Jesus. And the Pharisees have said, stop that. And the apostles have said, we can't stop. We've got to keep going. And at the end of the conversation, it says this. When they had called the apostles back in the room, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and, in the ho- and house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Friends, the only way you can have that kind of reaction to somebody hating you is if your focus is on him and on his love for even those who reject him. Do we identify with these aspects of discipleship in our lives? You know, the the worldly standard says that these things are undesirable. Who wants to feel poor in spirit? Who who wants to to feel that they have a a real need? Don't we want to be strong individuals? Who wants to have an appetite for the things of heaven when there's so many great things on earth that we can really sink our teeth in? Who wants to be in a position where literally the things of this world break your heart? Wouldn't you just rather be numb to them and turn a blind eye to them and, and soothe your pain and suffering some other way that's a little more pleasant? Who wants to be confrontational with people? Why don't we all just get along and live and let live? Friends, this is radically different than the world but the sad part also to me is that it's very dissimilar to how many Christians live their lives as I look at this list I said at the outset this was very personal for me and I've been preaching to myself this morning and let you listen in and I'm sorry if I took too much of your time but the simple fact of the matter is the Christian community is weakest when we reject this truth when we say we want Jesus as Savior but we don't want him as Lord and we refuse to acknowledge our spiritual poverty in the correct context of our citizenship of heaven and we don't have an appetite for the things of God because we're so enamored with the things of this world and we just don't care and we turn a blind eye to the pain and when we refuse to be confrontational with the gospel, the kingdom of God suffers. And quite frankly, those outside the kingdom of God lose an opportunity to hear the truth. Jesus says, disciples, there are some things that you must know. And what you know is because what I need you to know are the things that are important to me. Will they also be important to you? Let's pray.